Hi, and welcome to a special episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by two friends and colleagues. First up, we have Ibrahim Halawi of Royal Holloway University. And second, we have Ruba Ali Al-Hassani of Lancaster University. And today we are here to talk about a very special and very exciting report that the three of us have been working on. This is a project that has been funded by the Henry Luce Foundation, and it reflects on questions of sectarianism and desectarianization. So, Ibrahim, Ruba, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you here, as always. Thanks, Simon. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Ruba, welcome back to the thank UK. I apologize for my voice. <laughs> You've spent a long time traveling, but it's important that we get this out to celebrate the launch of this wonderful, wonderful report that the three of us have been working on for a long, long time now, titled Desectarianization and the End of Sectarianism? Question mark. So, perhaps we should kick off just by saying a little bit about the genesis of this then. Um, Ibrahim, you were with me from the very start with this. This was a, an application that we put in, goodness, pre-COVID, I guess, um, to, to Henry Luce. And um, we were very lucky to, to get the support from, from the foundation and to get the money to do this. And it, it came at a time, the ideas came at a time when um, there, were, there were wide-scale protests taking place across Lebanon and, and Iraq that were raising questions about the salience of, of sectarian identities in the context of the state. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what, was, what was driving your intellectual interest in this project, Ibrahim, please? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I, I think the, the main thing here is that we felt that the literature on sectarianism has developed substantially even before the uprisings in Baghdad and Beirut uh, in 2019. Um, but we also felt that we should speak more directly to the contentious nature of sectarianism, particularly in which segments of society interact, challenge, or even redefine what they see as sectarianism. Um, and then the uprisings, of course, I was also, I happened to be part of um, um, the uprising in Lebanon, and it, it defines me both as a scholar as, and as a Lebanese citizen. And I felt that this is an important moment in which we should not just wait until we can read the outcomes of this big contentious moment, but instead we should sort of walk with it uh, in our intellectual labor. And so at the center of this is the idea that desectarianization as a concept, we thought, um, can feed a bit more into the literature on social movements, um, uh, and on contentious politics, because it seems that there is something to be said about the strength and the stickiness of the sectarian order, despite mass mobilizations in these instances. So that's why I think the question at the end of our title, uh, the end of sectarianism, I didn't expect it to be as important as uh, it turned out to be, because indeed we realize now um, that it's very hard for us to suggest that we're moving beyond sectarianism at all. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put and um, and speaks to so many different driving forces in, in what we're trying to do here. I think maybe the genesis of it as well is this idea that if, as, as Nader Hashimi and Danny Pastel argue, 
sectarian differences constructed as a consequence of a whole host of different factors, then to what extent can it be deconstructed? Or, and this is going back a long, long time now, Ibrahim, a conversation we had years ago, you suggested that maybe deconstructed isn't the right way of looking at it, but rather reimagined. And I, I thought that was a really interesting way of, of framing this. It's not necessarily deconstructing the position of sectarian identities within political projects, but reimagining their role, and what that means. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like the use of the term reimagining precisely because, again, in the context of what's happening in today across the region, maybe structures of sectarianism are not necessarily changing. Uh, but what really matters in practice is how people perceive their identities rather than some kind of objective existing identity that has been constructed and needs to be deconstructed. And so the reimagination process and using the term reimagination gives us a bit more fluidity in understanding how rich this experience is and how people engage with it differently and re-engage in different times of their life. So, Rupert, what is your your understanding then of of this desectarianization in the uh, in the Iraqi context? I mean, you you came to the project slightly after Ibrahim and myself. We were able to um, to bring you on board to to look at Iraq. You come from a slightly different intellectual background: um, law, sociology, psychology, which is different to to Ibrahim and myself. So. What's your understanding then of, of this, this desectarianization and the reimagining of, of sectarian identities? Well, in the Iraqi context, the Tishrina October protest movement had a slogan, uh, which is uh, we want a homeland. And while most people have translated that to mean we want a country, the way I see it is they're saying we want a homeland. Uh, and the homeland is a place of belonging. And so these, this young generation went out in protest, sure, against corruption, against the ethnic confessional uh, constitutional system, but it's also seeking belonging in a country that has been divided for so long, that has been sectarianized for so long. And there's a banner that I always use in my conference presentations where um, protest, which protesters listed, it said, we are the generation of the broken uh, dream, the generation of premature aging, we are the generation that was raised during your sectarianization and during your terrorism. And I think this banner speaks a lot about the generation, what it has been through on the individual level, on the collective level, um, the alienation that it has gone through. Um, on the institutional level, whether it's politically or socially. And they've reached a point where they feel so alienated from each other and from their own political governments that they felt the need to go out and seek belonging um, through these gatherings, these public gatherings in protest. And even to this day, there are you know activists and protesters who think back to the peak of the protest movement with nostalgia saying those were good days where we were all out together fighting for the same cause and if only we can keep the momentum going. And it says a lot about sectarianization and desectarianization in the sense that desectarianization is not only a political matter, it's a, it's a social matter, it's an individual matter. 
and we need to, you know, zoom in and out of the context to look at the individual within the larger context. The proxy wars and the political games and the coalition forming, and go back to the Iraqi individual and what he or she or they want within the context of the protest movement. What does the protest movement tell us about their efforts to desecternize society and their future? I think that's a really, really valuable way of, of looking at it in terms of both belonging, but also the importance of, of moving across different levels. Um, there's the, the age-old levels of analysis problem in, in international relations and political science, but what we're seeing with, um, I guess, with, with sectarianism and its position within states, political projects, regional, um, regional politics, is that it affects broadly the political not just formal politics but all aspects of, of everyday lives which is something that I think um, we all touch on in our respective component parts which makes processes of desectarianization that much more difficult because they're verging on the existential I guess if it was just formal politics then it would be far easier to to untangle is that fair to say do you think Ibrahim yeah, yeah I think we arrived by the end of, of, of this particular study to the idea of the episteme um, of politics. And we we kind of discussed, I think more can be said and we should follow up on this, the idea that there is something peculiar about sectarian orders in the sense that not only do they dominate politics, which is normal, right? In any country in the world, there's a specific set of ideologies that dominate politics. But in this context, this sort of lived experience that you're talking about, it not only defines, it's not, it not only dominates life, it actually defines it. So in that sense, what people understand to be politics is sectarianism. So sectarianism is politics and politics is sectarianism. And this has implications on how they live their life and how they try to change things. Because even when they perceive or reimagine their identities, they are locked into specific sets of knowledge that were initially defined by sectarian politics. And I think that that point about knowledge is really valuable here, and this is why I, I got I got quite excited by the epistemic rabbit hole, if you will, the idea that the episteme helps us to to identify and acknowledge the importance of some of these issues, because it's not just about the production of of knowledge about formal politics, as you say, but it's about what is thinkable. What is um, what types of claims to knowledge can be made, and if sectarianism has this this dominant role within the episteme, then that means that that everything that can be viewed as as the political, be it formal or informal, is viewed through the lens of a sectarian order. Do you want to come in? Yeah, absolutely, exactly. I sorry, I, I like the idea of what is thinkable. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just one thing. Sorry, Reva. Just the what is thinkable is a really nice way of putting it as well, because when we're studying desectarianization, basically what we're trying to say, what are people thinking of, be it with or against the existing order? And that's why we're arriving at the limits of these thoughts. And what, what is limiting these thoughts? Yeah, sorry, go on, Reva. No, um, I wasn't going to add too much to what you just said. It's just that, you know, these protest movements have allowed us to, have given us a prime opportunity to listen to what the people have to say, as opposed to the scholars and 
you know, the sociologists, the political scientists, and everyone else, and just listen, like, genuinely listen to what people on the ground say. And of course, there are some of us in the diaspora who are researching this, and it's, as Ibrahim mentioned earlier, this is personal for us. It's not just, it, it's hard to distance yourself, especially during a moment of heated protests, you know, you cannot divorce protests from emotion. And I've talked about this in other contexts. And it's hard as a researcher to look at this and engage with the knowledge formation around sectarianization, desectarianization, and still be completely apathetic or disconnected. We have to explore our own positionality within the context of these conversations. And of course, I invite everyone else to do that, not just people in the diaspora. And so when we talk about epistemology and the formation of knowledge on sectarianism and desectarianization, we need to, again, focus on what the people on the ground have to say and how they are impacted by the two processes, the sectarianization and desectarianization, and how they want desectarianization to unfold going forward, as opposed to someone trying to copy-paste the context from, you know, or copy-paste the process from one context to another uh, without regard for the local. Yeah, I think that's really important. And it it speaks to one of the, the key findings of the of the report that we are we're understanding desectarianization as a process, but a process that can take many forms from this uh, popular rejection of sectarian orderings, but also that popular rejection isn't necessarily a singular, um, monolithic, homogenous process. It can it can take many different forms, both within a particular protest, both within Iraq and Lebanon, but also diverging from Iraq and from Lebanon themselves. So we're not just talking about one particular um, fixed process. It's not path-dependent, for example. It's contingent upon the um, contingencies, complexities, peculiarities, idiosyncrasies of, of people. So let's let's delve deeper into um, into the Iraqi and the Lebanese cases before we we go into a, a slightly different comparative point about Bahrain. Um, Ibrahim, tell us just a little bit about desectarianization in Lebanon. Then, what is the what is the report arguing in the Lebanese context? Well, the report is arguing two things um, in this on this matter. The first is that in the context of Lebanon. There have been waves of protest movements that eventually culminated in 2019 uprising, but also sort of the electoral politics. I mean, the success of or whatever I mean, expectations we have of the 13 MPs, independent MPs that uh, that made it to the parliament. This is unprecedented. So the report sort of acknowledges that there is an element of culmination here in the protest movement, which involves learning lessons, uh, building up resources fortifying social networks across these activist groups um, and understanding politics a bit more through practice. But also, on the other hand, it, it acknowledges that this, despite the culmination aspect, it has not been a linear process of desectarianization, that people come in and out of challenging sectarianism depending on specific settings and experiences. And as Ruba pointed out, the more we acknowledge how complex and idiosyncratic this experience is, the harder it is for us to make these big claims 
about success and failure and linearity and instead sort of just acknowledge how fluid the process is. So this is exactly the case in Lebanon, which a lot of activists, a lot of groups are built between, particularly in between 2011, of course, inspired by the Arab Spring and 2019. So they were formed, reformed, deformed, evolved, merged. In this process, individuals come in, come out, contradict themselves. Um, as a result of that specific discussion that we're having on the ethics team of politics. So in other words, there's some hope in the fact that there is culmination in resources and knowledge, but also it's a very careful message of hope that links to the complexity of how people interact with the sectarian order, which of course, despite in the context of Lebanon, deep existential, fiscal, financial, and economic collapse, and really just the bankruptcy of the state and the banking sector, somehow the sectarian order still, until further notice, manages to keep everything intact. I think that's a really fascinating, depressing, important point here. Um, we, we see that there are reports framing the the Lebanese crisis, uh, crisis or crises as the worst financial crisis in the past 200 years or so. And yet, those responsible for it, those in positions of power, those sectarian elites, remain in power despite a popular protest driven by a chant of all of them means all of them. Yeah, I mean, that's one other aspect that I zoom in on, the all of them means all of them aspect. And um, I, I present a very controversial, I admit, uh, argument about the all means all, and I suggest that all means all popular protest was in and of itself based on sectarian logic. Because the all means all was effective precisely because people were able to avoid sectarian confrontation by by saying that I'm not going to be speaking about my own sectarian biases or my own sectarian zayim as long as you don't speak about him either. So in that sense, we're saying all of them are somewhat, somehow responsible. But as soon as you give some kind of credit or you're apologetic to your own zayim in the process, then I bring back my sort of sectarian biases. So I think all means all itself is not such a radical narrative. Instead, it's actually a very concessional narrative that understands people's biases and links to sectarianism. And because it does so, it managed to mobilize them outside these sort of sectarian biases. But until then, it was effective. Once Saad al-Hariri resigned as prime minister who represents a specific sect, then the, the, the balance of this statement uh, was lost and, and things went downhill. So in other words, indeed, People in Lebanon are fighting sectarianism. Indeed, they are challenging, and this challenge is becoming much more mature and effective. But because it's a fluid challenge, because it's nonlinear, and because sectarianism continues to define politics, what politics means and how we change it, that's the limit that somehow allows sectarian Zama or elite to reproduce an order even in the midst of, as you pointed out, Simon, one of the biggest financial crises in modern times. And I think that is um, a point that, that our friend and colleague Basil Saluk makes when he talks about the retreat to the sectarian citadel, even amidst this widespread set of protests that in some ways are, are driven by this rejection of sectarian elites, but at the same time, as you point out here and in the piece, this is a sectarian, um, or inf- informed by sectarian principles and visions of order. So there's this this complex negotiation and dialogue taking place formally and informally, politically, socially, 
um, economically that is informed by a very specific nature of, of knowledge produced on the, the Lebanese political context? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you're always more eloquent than me, and so you give me that <laughs> perfect, concise conclusion <laughs> after I, bl- I blabber for 10 minutes and then Simon takes 10 seconds to conclude. That's great. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time listening to you talk, Ibrahim, and reading your work, mm-hmm. and um, I just don't have the ability to go into as much detail as you do about these really interesting things. So uh, it's, it's really, really valuable, though, really important stuff. Um, Ruba, what's the Iraqi context then? What are the similarities and, and points of difference from Lebanon, but also within um, the Iraqi, quote-unquote, desectarianization moment? People seem to be more aware about sectarianization efforts. And in the workshop that I conducted for this report, there were many... Um, descriptions of sectarianization as a process uh, without being used, without even using the word sectarianization, which was very interesting. And um, even in the follow-up interviews with academics in particular, they also didn't use the word sectarianization, but they did speak of it as a process. So it was common knowledge to all participants that it is a process. Um, that is done institutionally, whether politically or socially, and the only way to counter it is through another process, and that the Tishrin movement was a great first step towards that direction. There was a point made by a participant about how the Tishrin movement has, may have given rise to a different kind of sectarianization. Um, where there are certain pockets of the population that oppose the movement, and they are more uh, affiliated with the armed groups uh, that are present, and how there is this new kind of polarization. <laughs> That's not the word she used. She used the word sectarianism, but I thought it was interesting that she used that word. Um, but it's a polarization between those who are pro-movement and anti-movement, and the labels and stigmas that have arisen since then describing people who are pro-Iran and anti-Iran. And the language that has been used is not necessarily positive, um, it's derogatory. And so this person was correct in the sense that with the Tishreen movement, now we see this new kind of divisiveness. And it aligns with previous forms of divisiveness because more recently, there has been a peak in sectarian rhetoric on social media. Um, and the people who push this sectarianism fall under one of those two categories. But the interaction online, and I refer to this because I use social media as a research methodology, and um, looking at people's interaction online demonstrates that people are more aware now of this process of sectarianization and they're more um, candid about it, they're more vocal in opposing it now than they were in the past because now they're more aware about who's behind this process, who keeps on pushing it, and there's a greater effort to fight it, at least on the grassroots level, um, against those who are pushing it on the institutional level. 
and um, maybe I can draw this to a recent campaign in Iraq, um, more recent news, where there was a campaign launched by the Ministry of Interior to contain, how do I say this in English? It's in Muhtarabat, or like the low-quality social media content. And they're targeting people who, YouTubers, TikTokers, Instagrammers, who, can, who create video content for popularity and likes and all that. And they're targeting um, anyone who they deem is producing low content. And of course, the first question is, what is low content? What is this bad content that is being uh, spread on social media? And people are worried that this is this ambiguity of the context, uh, sorry, of the concept will allow for violations of free speech. And indeed, it's going to be used that way. But one of the first things you see online by the people who are opposed to this campaign will say, okay, if we are fighting bad content on social media, shouldn't we target sectarian rhetoric? That's the one that, you know, threatens national security. That's the one that promotes violence. So people are bringing this whole context to argue for free speech and against hate speech and sectarian rhetoric that is that indeed does um, threaten uh, national security in Iraq. I think that points to the the broader holistic component of, of what's going on here. It's not just about formal politics or or social movement protests, but rather it encompasses captures. Um, infiltrates is maybe a little, little um, nefarious, but it's sort of, it's it's quite insidious. It gets into all aspects of of daily life, right? Rubik, you mentioned violence, and I think that's that's an interesting point of comparison um, between Iraq and Lebanon. Um, can you just say a little bit about the the role of violence in desectarianization, please? In desectorialization? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, it's, a, it's a motivator to push towards desectorialization. Mm. You know, the responses that you get from many people in Iraq when discussing sectarianism, they will say, may God never bring back those days of the peak sectarian violence. Because everyone lost someone, a loved one, to that sectarian Civil War, and it was frightening for many people on the ground because it was effectively a war. It was. Um, there was. I've lost at least two family members to it, so it's personal to everyone. And the violence was unspeakable because when we talk about hate-motivated violence, we're talking about personal violence. So in the context of a cousin of mine who I've lost to the violence, she was stabbed 14 times. And I always think back to that. 14 times is a lot of hatred, you know, to stab someone for That's overkill. Um, and that's the kind of violence we talk about when we um, engage in these conversations about sectarianism and sectarian violence and racial violence and any form of violence that is motivated by hatred towards a member of a social group uh, that is identity-based. Mm -hmm. And it is the worst type, kind of violence because of that. How do you, what's the proper, uh, for some reason, cleanses the first word that came to mind, but it's not necessarily the right one. 
how do you um, undo this kind of hatred in, in any society? How do you um, cleanse the hatred uh, from the social context? But of course, you don't do it easily. It takes a very long time. And desecurization takes a long time. Deracialization takes a long time. And it requires a strong systemic effort um, on all institutional levels. But unfortunately, in the Iraqi context, and even in the Lebanese context, we don't have systemic efforts fighting them. There are claims in the Iraqi context by some politicians to say, we are fighting sectarianism. But the, those who claim to fight sectarianism on a political level are the ones who have motivated, uh, who have gained the most from it. And they're the ones who have maintained this process of sectarianization and this um, continued momentum uh, or resilience of no, of no confessional constitutional model. And so we don't have that systemic effort to fight towards desectarianization. But on the, on the social level, yes, there are many efforts by people who engage in insightful conversations about how to reconstruct identity or um, reconstruct notions of sex and um, Especially, you know, during the pandemic, people have resorted online, and in the past year, we've seen more people use Twitter, uh, Twitter spaces to engage in conversations and clubhouse. And of course, there are privacy concerns about those, but they're using them to have public conversations. Mm-hmm. And I entered a clubhouse conversation where, interestingly, there are people from the southern movement, as well as activists, as well as people from different polarized uh, groups. And it was very interesting to see that they're willing, there are many people are willing to come together and sit at the same table and have these conversations. But as I said, there are no systemic efforts to support that. Sure. Ibrahim, do you want to add anything on on violence or indeed the rejection of violence in the Lebanese context before we turn to our third case study, a brief turn to the case study? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, this is uh, the nice thing about this project is that we really come from very different uh, disciplines and fields. So even when we invoke the idea of violence, you can tell how sort of Ruba feeds into that anthropological sense of violence and then the implications. But for me, from a political science perspective, I, I understand violence more structurally. And I think because I'm also obsessed with revolutions and social movements, my take would be that part of that episteme of politics that has been defined by sectarianism, violence seems to be also part of that. And so the only violence that people can imagine is a violence that leads sectarian ends. But indeed, historically speaking, such deeply rooted orders often can only be sort of uprooted with violence. Um, And this is my Fanonian side speaking here as well. However, in the context of Lebanon, indeed, just like Ruba said, people have lost so much in the civil war and other forms of violence, everyday violence. So in that sense, they cannot imagine how, by employing violence, they can get anywhere other than sectarianism. Uh, so the limitations on, on what kind of contentious politics people employ uh, also limits the possibilities and the prospects of radical transformation. Yeah, and I guess that, that goes back to your points earlier about episteme and um, what is knowable and thinkable what is possible absolutely yeah. yeah so let's briefly move on to to my part of the report which is on bahrain and i think bahrain 
offers an interesting counter argument to some of these points that we've been talking about um, in the Lebanese and Iraqi cases. Bahrain is similarly dominated or political life, everyday life has been similarly dominated by questions of sect and sectarian ordering and what is thinkable, the episteme of, of, of Bahraini life has been dominated by sectarianism and geopolitically charged sectarianism positioned between the, the Saudis and the Iranians caught within a geopolitical rivalry and because of the salience of, of sectarian identities within political, social, cultural, economic life, it's also been viewed by some as an epicenter of, of broader um, sectarian contestation. I think that's maybe a little problematic to, to talk about, but it's it's got this huge importance, I think, and it's a really interesting case because what the Bahraini case does is it highlights the different ways that desectarianization can play out. Um, and what, what I try and do in my part is to show that desectarianization can also be a top-down mechanism of control. So rather than a bottom-up process of reimagining um, with the aim of improving normatively life and transforming, reimagining um, the nature of political, social, economic life, in Bahrain, the ruling Al Khalifa family have sought to engage in processes of desectarianization as a way of depoliticizing particular groups, as a way of removing them from the arena of the political, or as a way of removing what is achievable from these groups. And what's interesting, I think, with the Bahraini case is that while it begins, uh, the, 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 the recent story begins with a protest a grassroots protest that has been described as um, as, as a huge, uh, a huge grassroots protest en encompassing a large percentage of the country's population, which I guess falls into the rubric of, of a desectarianizing moment. What quickly happened was the Al Khalifa embarked on a sectarianizing process, framing Shia groups as nefarious fifth columnists doing the bidding of Iran. But once they'd secured power, once they'd secured, consolidated their own positions, they embarked on this desectarianizing move, which was, in the Bahraini case, a depoliticization of Shia groups, removing all possibility of Shia groups from changing the political system, from changing the the everyday lives of of Bahrainis in line with their vision. So this took place through a, a range of different strategies, including citizenship stripping, banning of political parties, and it's the reimagining of the role of religious sectarian identities, but in a top-down way designed to regulate life and as a mechanism of control. And what I think is interesting after that is that in, in line with Saudi Arabia, the Bahrainis then turn their attention to Sunni Islamists and start trying to reimagine the role of Sunni Islamists in the political life by banning groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood. So this desectarianizing um, process, processes, can be viewed as mechanisms of control and can be deployed by those in positions of power in 
I guess, another way of, of, of regulating the lives of, of people. And I think that's where we get some interesting points of, of difference compared to the Iraqi and the Lebanese cases, but also um, we get a, a richer understanding of desectarianization as a set of different processes that broadly go back to um, to what Ibrahim was saying earlier, speak to the reimagining of the role of, of sectarian identities in everyday life, be it a positive force for change, as we see in Iraq, or a more complex positive and negative reimagining of what is thinkable and unthinkable in, in the Lebanese case, or as a mechanism of control in the Bahraini case. I think you've got a complex set of processes and ideas that are at play here. And I think that's what we're trying to, to demonstrate in the in the report. Yeah, absolutely. But I have a follow-up question for you, Simon. How yes. it's easy, I'm, I'm thinking here in the context of Iraq and Lebanon, it, it would have been, it was, I, I think, easier to engage with that desectorization as a phenomenon because it's happening at the bottom. Mm-hmm. But how, how do you manage to study top-down desectorization given, of course, the limits on access and uh, the data to the field. So how do how do you navigate these things? With difficulty. Um, there's a huge number of sensitivities at play here. Um, interviewee safety, restrictions on access. I, I can't go to Bahrain anymore. I'm on a long list of people who are who are banned. Um, and then of course my own safety. So it's it's navigating a whole host of, of complex issues. But there are there are ways of speaking to people. There are ways of speaking to um, elites, those in positions of power who are willing to talk about things, granted from a particular viewpoint with a particular ideological bent. But there, there are also people whose, um, whose lives have been turned upside down by these processes, people who are now stateless because their citizenship has been stripped, people whose political identities have been, um, have been eviscerated because of these processes. And there are lots of people willing to talk about what's happened. A lot of people who are in a in the diaspora who are affected and have been affected by what's happened over the past ten years. It's a difficult um, thing to do, and it's it's different to to the the other context that we look at. But there are ways to do it, of course, and um, there are always people willing to talk. Yeah, good. <laughs> So, we have been speaking for a long time now. All that remains to be said is please do check out the report. We've put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, we think there's some really interesting findings, observations. The, um, the sections on Lebanon and Iraq in particular are wonderful, excellent, and really, really rich in terms of their analysis. Hopefully you'll find it interesting and provocative and will um, we'll get you thinking about what is thinkable, what is knowable, and what is unthinkable. Um, please do uh, do engage with us. Let us know what you think. Ibrahim, Ruba, thank you so much for all of your efforts on the report and for your time today. It's been a real pleasure, as always. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you, Simon. Thanks. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure add- to work with you as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ibrahim. Can I add one one quick note? Please. If that's okay. Um, the purpose of this report, or at least my part of the report on Iraq, was to shed some light into how sectarianism affects more than just the region, which is the 
stereotypical um, approach to sectarianism, especially in the Middle East. Um, in the Iraqi context, it affects so much more than just Sunnis and Shia. Um, it affects largely marginalized groups who have been exiled and expelled and erased and subject, you know, massacred indigenous groups who are now largely in the diaspora and no longer exist in Iraq. And they're being pushed out um, more and more. And at least I invite people who study the Iraqi context to try to stop looking at it as a purely Sunni-Shia conflict, because it's not. It affects groups who are being truly, genuinely erased from the map of Iraq. And when we have these conversations about sectarianization, desectarianization, we need to stop using terms that um, just focus on Sunnis and Shia and invite people from those marginalized groups to engage in the epistemology, to engage in the knowledge formation around um, these concepts. And yeah. hopefully that will allow to shed more light into these conversations moving forward. I think that's a good way of putting it, and it speaks to the broader work that people in Sepad have been doing on lines of inclusion and exclusion, and and I think this report contributes to that by helping understand the reimagining of those lines of inclusion and exclusion, what is thinkable, what is knowable, who can be included, who can be excluded, and that is not, as you say, just limited to, to two sects, but speaks to sect, ethnicity, tribe, class, ideology, so many other issues. So thank you for raising that, Ruben. and I think that's a really, really important point to end on. So thank you, both of you. It's been a real pleasure, and um, do get in touch. Let us know what you think of the report. Thank you for listening. <laughs>